Welcome to the journey of an esthete, a comprehensive examination of all things aesthetic, the arts, the humanities, and what it means to be human. Why do people work? Why does everybody have a career doing some kind of work? People work because they enjoy doing things that are useful. And people work to be able to buy the things they need for themselves and their families. In every single career, people earn that the other people need want. Everyone needs food. We all need clothing. We need housing. And we need health care. Skip, uh, this is Mitch Hampton from Journey of an Esthete. Welcome to our podcast. Thanks. Thanks for the coffee. <laughs> yeah, I try to do what I can. You know, uh, for those that don't, don't know, I just completed wa watching one of Skip's shows, um, which you do fairly regularly, right? On um, lunchtime or uh, I think during the day. Uh, yeah, um, this is something I started uh, during the beginning of the pandemic last yeah. March okay. of last year, uh, and I show old 16 millimeter films from my collection. That's kind of why I collect and not being able to have live shows. I felt like this is a way for me to, to show live the films show. in my collection. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's beautiful. And I, so, I, can't, I can't emphasize enough how grateful and thankful I am to you for doing this because these are some amazing films. Well, anyhow, let me just start from normal introduction. Um, I want to say a few words about what you do. Um, um, from time to time on this show, we discuss works of art that, for lack of a better word, my category, I would call them utilitarian or functional. So mm -hmm. they're not, mere, you know, they're not sort of high, complex personal expression, but they're to teach or to serve various institutional, industrial ends. And that's kind of my category for the overarching, you know, types of films that you show that, that don't fit under the normal, you know, normal fiction or even normal documentary filmmaking. And I don't know what the, that's my term utilitarian. And you, one of the reasons I'm having you on this show is you are an expert and a scholar and an archivist of all this material, which is significant and covers, you know, many decades, um, many styles of films. We'll get to some of that in a bit. And um, so I guess you've been doing this for a long time. So I think I first met you at Coolidge Corner Theater, right? Yeah. Remember when you mm -hmm. did shows back? So what period of time would that have been when you were doing sort of road shows at midnight and you would come in and show these 16-millimeter, like, education films? or? Uh, this was like the early 2000s, I feel like. Okay. Um, and I was doing some tours where I was going – to Boston, New York, yep. uh, Texas, uh, and I was uh, putting together themed shows That's from my collection of, of uh, films and showing them. Yeah, uh, you know, mostly for laughs. 
<laughs> um, you know, uh, I think we did a couple of midnight screenings, oh, those, uh, which were, those were a real treat. Really. Yeah. They were really fun. Uh, and you know, that's, I, that, I always consider that, uh, the gateway drug into, um, having people really think about the important of the importance of these films, yeah, absolutely. which were, you said utilitarian, yeah. you know, some people call these useful films. Uh, ephemeral films, uh, educational. Uh, these were meant for a very specific audience uh, in a very specific time yeah. and sometimes a specific place. Mm -hmm. And they weren't supposed to last. Uh, it's kind of like newspapers. You know, newspapers really aren't supposed to last past a certain point. And mm -hmm. so a lot of these films were destined for landfills mm -hmm. and for... Um, the junkie, you know, just yeah. junkie because they were considered to be obsolete. Well, yeah, the junkie of history, right? So, it, but you know, yeah. I'm, I'm remembering this wonderful phrase of J.G. Ballard, the writer. He coined the phrase "invisible literature." You know, literature that's not really literature. Um, maybe it's scientific, but he calls it invisible. It's sort of um, people don't acknowledge that it's made by somebody, or they don't acknowledge it's right. They don't, they don't acknowledge its constructed artistic nature, which after all, I mean, I have to say, I want to get into specific films, if you don't mind. But first, I want to, of talk, course. About, uh, first I want to talk about your personal biography. But before we get to that, I wanted to say about um, invisible literature is that, you know, it's, um, it often goes under the radar and often um, – but, but the thing of it is, if you look at a film like um, Sally at 13 – comes to mm -hmm. mind or the fur coat club which is made by a really great director john, john silver or some of them are are good as films um you know or, or stuff by the teaching company and you know some really really wonderful work so it's a whole what i'm saying is a lot of stuff that gets uh because of the way we categorize things in culture often gets ignored that shouldn't be ignored of course that's one thing that's a long-winded way of uh, talking about that but um Getting back to you, I'm just curious um, how you came to be an expert on this material, and how was it? Did it start from an interest in the film itself, or tell me a little bit about your earliest memories or background that you became the man? Well, this is this is the man <laughs> for this. Um, yeah, this is a hobby that went way out of control. Um, I was. This is like the mid '90s, actually, probably early '90s now. Mm -hmm. um, and I was collecting old audiovisual equipment because I was doing these performances with a bunch of dudes. We were doing lots of noise stuff and experimental oh, stuff, okay. and so I always. So you come. Go ahead. The, I'm sorry. So you come out of an experimental avant-garde music tradition. I did not know this. That's interesting. That's well, avant-garde is in quotes, <laughs> we just like to make noise and okay. do funny things. And I also, when I was a kid, I really was interested in becoming some sort of video artist, mm -hmm. but, um, I went, <clears throat> I went to school at, at a state college, state university, NC state in Raleigh. And, okay. um, they didn't, weren't really teaching video, uh, art around here. So, I was in computer science and then I was in the school of design and that's when I started cutting my teeth on uh, doing video editing and started buying surplus video equipment mm -hmm. so I could edit stuff. 
And at one point I got a 16 millimeter projector and um, went to this auction where we got 500 uh, films for $50. Wow. And these were all educational films, instructional films, dealing with health, dealing with uh, drinking and driving, yeah. dealing with drugs, uh, some atomic stuff, driver's ed stuff. Mm. Uh, it was a phenomenal collection. And at first, you know, they were funny. Yeah. And that's because I was used to seeing them on Mystery Science Theater. Right. And so, and they're, you know, they're corny and funny mm-hmm. to kind of look back at. But then at some point I kind of realized like, you know what, these are actually interesting because they capture mm-hmm. kind of a segment in culture. Absolutely. Like they, there was this time uh, where we were afraid of something. Mm-hmm. And this film is trying to address those fears and try to come up with ways to curb that behavior or, you know, lessen the traffic deaths or, yeah, you know, yeah. keep people from getting venereal disease or, you know, whatever. There, there was, these films yeah. have this kind of, well, sometimes secret, sometimes not secret agenda yeah. for trying to solve a problem, so. change our behavior. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so I think that's fascinating. I think that that it's totally fascinating. shows us um, kind of a, a, an image of, wow, that's a problem back then. Yeah. Wow, that was that was what our fears were. Yeah. Or this is what we were trying to aspire towards at this time. And and that that's very telling. Uh and sometimes that isn't always shown. Uh especially if you look at like movies of the time, like feature films or T V news of the time. You don't get to see that. Right. Um and these films were really good at at showing that. Well, you're describing sort of the reactions of audiences in the nineties or the two thousands up until now. Of course, these are reactions of people that are too young, you know, not always, but in a large extent, to have been, if the film is really old, you know, mm-hmm. to have been around. So there's a certain historical distance, an aesthetic distance from these objects. So it must seem, in many senses, peculiar. So what, what you've, so I guess your journey, your evolution is seeing both the campy aspect of it or the part that's unintentionally funny, right? That, that someone right. might mock. But you're also seeing there's this deeper thing that it's actually part of social history and the history of right. the United States. Um, um, as well as, as, as I pointed out at the opening, the history of art itself, because I think there's a, there's a functional aspect to even the highest art. You know, for example, if you read a, you know, you know, a great novel by a, by a renowned you know, artistic novelist, that novelist has opinions about things and you know, ideologies right. or political beliefs or – and that comes out in the characters they write, in the work. You can't escape it. And that in itself is a kind of function. There's a sense in which the novelist is, whether they know it or not, trying to teach something, right? So there's always this – I think always a educational element, right, when you say of some kind or, or you know, uh, to these things. Right. Um, but what would you say – so when did the change start to happen? You got these 500 films, but when – it's amazing that now you have thousands and thousands. So talk a little bit about that journey and your – you know, how you started to – Well, so what was happening – once I got that first batch of 500, uh, something – some chemistry in my brain changed. <laughs> and I started realizing like, wow, these are really fascinating. And I started looking at uh, auctions – and schools were dumping their films, mm. uh, their film libraries. And the reason why is that they replaced one teaching machine with another one. And what I realize now is that over the years, 
um, schools and you know, there are all these different ways to try to teach automatically teach kids something like mm-hmm. what is a way, you know, doing it with a human is seems so inefficient. Mm-hmm. What if there was a way we could do it automatically? And those teaching machines used to be slides. Mm-hmm. They used to be audio tape or records of, you know, films. Uh, and so the teaching machine that was replacing uh, the 16 millimeter was, of course, computers. Mm-hmm. You know, like, oh, computers. We can have computers and those can automatically teach kids. They can sit down in front of a computer and play games and learn yeah. math and all that stuff. And so a lot of schools didn't have the room for a computer lab because they already had all these other, you know, things designated. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, well, nobody's checking out these films anymore. And a lot of these are from the, the 40s or 50s or 60s. Mm-hmm. So let's clear those out and then we'll put in a computer lab. So mm-hmm. um, more often than not, like I would show up at a school to pick up a bunch of, of films and I would see boxes of computers and desks ready to be moved in. So mm-hmm. um that's how I ended up with a bunch of stuff um, is, is I'd go to these auctions and get like 1500 films for $50 or I'd get, you know, people would start just donating to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where we're at now is that people uh, are like, Hey, do you still collect films? Um, <laughs> right. Do you want mine? <laughs> like I even have old teachers who yeah. they rescue the films from the dumpster the first time, but now they realize oh. that, you know, we're just going to, um, I need to throw them out or I need room in the garage. So yeah. then I get a phone call. I mean, it's a, the, one of the reasons that first attracted me to your shows is you showed so many 70s movies. And yeah. you seem to emphasize that. And that's my favorite period for this stuff. I mean, the Coronet stuff in the 50s is, is interesting, but there's something about that happened in the 70s, early to mid 70s in filmmaking that was just explosive and interesting. You get as you know, new location shooting and new style, stylistic things and music, and it seems to be opened up. Whereas in the 50s movies, it's very, you know, these domestic sets. It's a little less, I don't know, it's a little less interesting, but that's a, that's a personal, personal. Right. Well, I mean, the 70s is when I grew up. So, uh, <laughs> of course, I'm interested in that. Um, you know, and I feel like there was a kind of a, a classic period. 1972 seems to have some of the best mm-hmm. um, movies in my mind. The ones that resonate with me kind of give me this warm feeling in my gut yeah. <laughs> um, where I'm like, oh, that's yeah, that that kid on that screen is the same age as me. That's right. Um, and these are the types of things I would have seen and, and felt. So, um, yeah, the 70s are you know, a precious time for me. But one of the interesting things is that a lot of people like to see my shows because there's a nostalgia, but there's also, I like to kind of flip it on its head because nostalgia isn't, you know, you remember things like, oh, that was sweet. Or like, no, let me show you how it was. Hmm. And these films can do that. Uh, These films can show you how it was. Yeah. And you you go like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. Or I never knew that. Um, I think the best experience Example of that is I don't know if if you came to the show I did where I showed Telezonia, mm-hmm. uh, a film from the seventies on how to use a telephone, and it's made yeah. for kids. Oh yeah, and it's a, it's a musical, and there's people dressed up in costumes, and it basically I teaches. Film. I love that film. But go I'm ahead. sorry. I love that film. Yeah. Yeah. It, um, but what it reminds you, it reminded me is like, oh yeah, there was a time I didn't know how to use a telephone, <laughs> and I had to learn how to dial, yeah. like. You know, we had dial phones, and that that requires a little bit of thinking on how to do that, especially if you're a kid. 
and like what's the concept of how to use a phone book and what what's phone etiquette all these amazing things that kind of teach us about you know how to use a phone and if you watch that film now mm-hmm. you can just go like wow yeah things have changed so much yeah it's since that time that's interesting because that's a that's in response to that film that you can only have now right so that's a sense in which the art right. object in the case telephonia it changes its meaning over time there's there'll be the film has to be seen in a different way today Right than it would have been when people had just one wall mounted phone in their house. You know, if you're watching, right, if, you watch, right. if you're watching Telephonia in 1984, it might have a totally different feeling, even as late as 1984, 85, than 2021, right or 2020. Right, right. And that's that's an interesting. It's actually really a profound change, and I'm sure you've I'm sure you've thought a lot about that. Yeah, and that's what I I like is the fact that these films still teach us things. And they don't necessarily teach us what was was the intended lesson, mm-hmm. but they teach us about how things changed over time culturally. Yeah. And, you know, uh, a lot of these educational films people call propaganda. And I would say yes and no. Propaganda in the way that it's trying to get the word out about what is, you know, the standard norms. It's trying to maintain the status quo. Right. Now, Chances are the status quo wasn't great, <laughs> it wasn't good, especially yeah. with gender and race issues, yeah. but it was the status quo of the time. Right. And, and a lot of people look at that and think like, well, these messages are very conservative. Mm-hmm. Well, believe it or not, those films were actually very progressive for their time because they were trying to, to show kids and show adults like, hey, this is how things are. Yeah. This is how what you can do to participate in society. Right. Um, you know, here are and some of them are, you know, they, they don't always age well, but some of them age amazingly well, where you're like, Wow, I wish that this film would be shown now. Yeah, you're thinking maybe people could use a film this film today. What's an example of one yeah. title that comes to mind that fits into that now that you're if you if you had to just think of a title? Well, there's actually really interesting ones about race. Mm-hmm. Um, that that came out in the in the forties, mm-hmm. uh, post World War II. In fact, there's a lot of interesting films that came out post World War II. Yes, that are trying to say like, "Hey, we just fought a world war mm-hmm. where we took on fascism." Yeah, and this is what you have to be careful of because fascism can show up even in our country. That's right. And it, it talks about it very specifically and very explicitly yeah. about, like, here are issues that we are having, uh, and we need to address them. Otherwise, we're going to go down the same path as Germany. Uh, it, and a, It could happen here, quality. Well, of course, as you know, some of the artists and creators of those films were themselves on the left or were, you know. In, in, oh, right, of course. Yeah, they were, so that's, that's going to be part of it, too. But, yeah, that makes sense. Well, it's, that's a – yeah, some of those films are really wonderful. I'm just wanting any specific oh, yeah. titles that you that are favorites or that. You well, the, the you know the house I live in, which uh, has yes, you know Frank Sinatra, Sinatra yeah. um, uh, "Don't Be a Sucker," uh, which was a uh, you know released by the War Department, mm-hmm. um, which is basically saying like, "Hey, you know, be aware. Uh, don't get caught up in this misinformation about you know that's trying to divide us as a country." Um, and that stuff is just like, wow, yeah, man, why wasn't that shown recently? <laughs> um, you know, exactly. so 
um, you know, films like that that are just like, that's amazing. Uh, and also you can see films um, that get it wrong. Mm. And they get it wrong because who is paying for the film. So we have a lot of films which are called sponsored films oh, yeah. where they were sponsored by Corporate. a company or by a lobbyist group uh, in films that talk about free enterprise and talk about labor and, you know, hint at the idea that labor is, you know, if you're siding with labor, then you could potentially be a communist because communists have infiltrated those organizations. Mm. And um, so there's all, a lot of these things that were talked about um, then that still show up. People talk about it now. Yeah. And you're like, <laughs> it's like, well, I know where that phrase came from. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, political stuff like that, you know, is fascinating. It is. And, um, you know, I, I guess the other thing is that I watch a lot of these films and I always you know, it's hard not to kind of sit and think about it, like, well, what's the ramifications of this? And one of the things I realize is that everybody should have taken home economics in school mm-hmm. because home economics teaches you how to cook food. Absolutely. It teaches you about nu- nutrition. Mm-hmm. It teaches you how to budget, um, you know, how to balance your, your checkbook uh, and, you know, how to sew clothes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, wow, yeah, I should have, instead of taking... Go ahead. Go, go, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say something about Well, instead of that. taking French in high school, I should have taken home math. I mean, exactly. because those are the problems that I'm having is, you know, I can't cook very well. I certainly can't sew. Yeah. I didn't know how to budget until just recently. So, right. you know, all that stuff is important life skill stuff. Well, it raises a, you know, you raise a profound question because you talked about how progressives and, you know, so what I would say is progressive in a neutral sense of that term, you know, not as, not as progressivism as only a point of view. But in the sense of, you know, I guess aspirational um, is the idea that anybody can be taught anything. So there was a kind of a very egalitarian component, wouldn't you say, to some of these home act type movies that you'd have an advisor, scientific advisor from a state university or from a Illinois about how to cook something, right? That's, right? That also fits into the progressive, I guess, ideal that this is something that can be transmitted. It's not exclusive knowledge. And, you know, it's available to everybody, right? Um, right. Is- right. And, yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the idea is that, you know, it, there were actually home economic, like, programs at universities. Mm-hmm. So they actually, um, I think the first one was actually at Cornell. Um, and they were like, you know what, um, the, the homemaker, the housewife, has a very important role. And her role is to run the family and the household. Yeah. Make sure that the kids are, are fed to make sure that, um, you know, that the family dynamics are working out okay. The kids are being raised okay. Um, you know, this is an important thing, yeah. which got a little during Women's Lib, saying that someone was a housewife yeah. is was like a negative thing. And I think that um, much later, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the a lot of the key pioneers in Women's Lib basically said we were wrong. Being a housewife and being a mother is super important, you know, and I'm sorry that we ever put that down. Um, And it's obvious in these films, but wow, this is an important job that that the the homemaker, the woman is doing. Uh, And somebody needs to do it for the family because if it doesn't, then bad things can happen. Yeah, real bad things can happen. Well, of course, that's now you're touching on a part of the history of feminism itself and the different – 
um, schools or styles of feminism, right, where some people uh, feminism starting to 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 be interested, in, I guess, in in housework as a form of labor with with interests. Right. I mean, it's it's always been what it is. Well, it's always been to, but but self consciousness is a form of labor that we can then appeal to the state to try to sort of give added dignity and, and, and importance and you know a sense of consciousness right. about that. But you but what you're saying is that in these films you can see bits of that, right? You can see. Yeah, well, it just basically says that, you know, and, and, and I think that maybe in the 90s, you know, when I was showing these films, the idea that, uh, that a woman, her path was she would have like a job until she got married, then she would raise a family. Mm-hmm. And it was always, well, you know, everybody kind of groaned like, oh, you know, that's, that's not great. That's horrible. Mm-hmm. But then it's like, wait a minute. <laughs> Actually, that's pretty important. I mean, she could get a job and do other things, but the fact that she has decided to dedicate her time to help raise a family is actually pretty great because yeah. it's a lot of work. <laughs> because the fa- because then the family will get raised. <laughs> I mean, somebody's yeah. got to do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. As opposed to you know, yeah, just- a gen- generations of of kids not being raised, and yeah, you know, all the problems associated with that. That's beautiful. I mean, I I hadn't didn't know we could get into that topic so early, but I guess it comes out of these films. But I, I guess I wanted. So you're starting to, I guess, gather knowledge about this. Um, that right. matters. But at the same time, you're getting artistic te- technological knowledge, right? Because you're learning about 16 millimeter and all these mm-hmm. films. Did you want to talk a little bit about that dimension, the different companies that made these and the styles? Of sure. Because I don't know. Uh, there's just yeah. to say there. I don't know what you were what you were discovering about that. During the same well, the 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 interesting thing is that when I started collecting, I thought that like a lot of people that these films were government produced because I would see some that were government produced, but the vast majority of them were actually made by companies that did it for money. Like um, they didn't do it because they thought it was you know socially important. They did it because they wanted to make a buck. (laughs) <laughs> and so you had some educational film companies that were uh, – so Encyclopedia Britannica, Coronet, uh, Centron Films. Mm-hmm. Uh, then later there was Journal. There was uh, Bailey. There was Phoenix. There was uh, Film Associates. There's hundreds of these companies that would make these films. Mm-hmm. And so you had big companies that would make it. But then you would also have really interesting thing. You would have these – uh, amateur filmmakers who would shoot footage, mm-hmm. they would add narration, and then they would sell the film. That's right. And so you you would have really kind of people who would advertise in the back of these uh, trade journals and say like, you know, the life of a butterfly. And it's basically somebody who is a, a hobbyist photographer who shot, yeah. um, you know, footage of butterflies. Mm-hmm. And then they added some music and narration, and then they sold it. Yeah. You collect some of those too. You have them, right? Oh yeah, yeah. They show up in collections um, because I get stuff from schools. So uh-huh. lots of stuff show up in schools, um, and you know, of course, eBay. I bought stuff on eBay over a period of time, um, and so yeah, I run across those as well. And what's interesting is those, because they're not by some big company, they have a more personal touch. Oh, uh, women filmmakers show up a lot in these. Um, and you know, you get to see kind of more, some of these are just kind of glorified home movies. So you just kind of see like, oh, well that's, 
the family That's right. sitting around the table. <laughs> and then they decided to edit a film about good table manners or something That's based right. on that. So, so it, the reason that I really like these films is because they were made all over the country. Yeah. And they capture parts of the country and, and things in the country that maybe would not be caught for television or not be shown in a, in a feature film or a newsreel. That's right. So um, there is some interesting stuff that shows up. And there's you know parts of the United States that are captured beautifully in educational films Absolutely. that were not really shown anywhere else. Well, that's one of the reasons – one of the other reasons I love under my rubric of utilitarian is that you see a documentation in some of these films of historical facts about American life, both regional right. and that and that itself is infinitely interesting or ought to be interesting to people. You know, I, that, yeah, that's, right. that's, that's, that's important. Um, did you want to talk about individual films at all? I know that um, – Sure. I mean if, did, uh, did you have some that resonated with you when you saw them? Um, well, there's I can so, certainly... so many, but, but, but I can't talk about all of them. <laughs> but leaving me out of it, certain films sort of became collectively sort of hits, like Shake Hands with Danger. <laughs> right. right. You, you folks right. had to put that out, and you guys were behind the Shake Hands with Danger. But what do you think accounts for the enormous success of that particular film, you think, how it took off? And- uh, it, is, it is the song. Yeah. And it, it is the, the humor mm-hmm. uh, and the fact that even though it was shot in like the late 70s, 1980, uh, it's still being shown today. Yep. And it's shown for the purpose that it was intended, which is to teach people to be careful uh, around heavy equipment. <laughs> um, it was made for a caterpillar. That's right. Uh, the people that make the giant uh, – uh, industrial uh, earth moving equipment, and it was made specifically for people that were working on and repairing that equipment because those things are super heavy, um, and if you're not careful, uh, you will get crushed, or you will fall to your death, or something horrible will happen to you. So this this film was made as a way to kind of educate people, and the filmmakers, uh, Centron Films, which mm-hmm. were they were based in Lawrence, Kansas, they. Uh, one of the people that worked for them, Jim Stringer, wrote a song, Shake Hands with Danger, and he uh, had a guy named Charles Oldfather who sang it with a nice country twang. Yeah. And it's super, super catchy. It's and a great song. It's, it's a great song. Yeah. It's, it's a musician. Yeah. And they yeah. <laughs> actually, they released it on cassette hmm. and sold it at Caterpillar Tractor Places, and oh. they sold like Tens of thousands of copies of it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's part um, of the story of that of that film. But that film is uh, well. Talk about a. Would you say that's one of the more famous or the more beloved of films in this category we've been discussing, or it's up? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. By far. And I think the the reason why I like showing it is because it's it's an example of a successful film. Like it's because we can look at these films in hindsight and say like, yeah, what were they thinking? That was kind of dumb or, you know, wow, isn't that a dated concept? But this is an example of a film that really got it right. And you're like, wow. And that's why it's still being shown today. And why if you look on YouTube, you'll see that some uh, community colleges and technical colleges actually have students make their own version of Shake Hands with Danger. (laughs) Using using whatever is in their shop. Um. And uh, 
it's really great. And it just tells me that it's just a phenomenal piece of work. And, and what I, that's what I like to do is I like to show the fact that the people that made these films, they were trying, they were trying um, to really get the word out and try to identify who their audience was and what, what will resonate with their audience. Um, I mean, if you think about the Ohio's um, Highway Safety Film Foundation mm. uh, films like Signal 30 yep. and um, Mechanized Death and Wheels of Tragedy, those films, they try to resonate by just showing gore. <laughs> they show people yeah. who were just in car accidents, and it's horrifying. But it it has, uh, you know, I talk to people who are like, do you have those films that they show, those ones of all the people that are lying dead on the road? And I'm like, I do. And they're like, yeah, I, uh, that's, that messed me up. <laughs> because that was oftentimes the first time somebody ever saw a dead person oh, was wow. in their driver's ed class. Wow. Um, but the thing is, you know, that shocked people so much that, you know, sometimes the safety message was left out. Like people don't identify with it. They look at it and they're like, well, that's not me. You know, look at how old that car is. I have a new car. Or, you know, teenagers will do whatever they can to kind of convince themselves that they're invincible. And so they won't identify with the message if it's too strong. That's right. Uh, drug, drug films are the same way. If you show something that's too intense, then they'll just tune it out. Everybody needs an anchor in life. You, me, just everybody. Anchor made this whole show possible. I'm immensely grateful to them. You too can use Anchor to make your own shows and create your own vision. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Yeah, like the Sonny Bono Anita Bryant picture, right? Isn't there a Sonny Bono famous one? That you well, there is, those are two separate ones. So there's the Sonny Bono marijuana one. Uh, where he talked about uh, the dangers of marijuana and tries to reason with you and have you kind of come to the same conclusion. Yeah. And he's wearing this amazing gold lame oh, yeah. uh, suit. That's what, one of my favorite things about the film, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, he talks about, and there's a couple of films like this, where they try to reason with the viewer and say like, hey, we're going to show you some things. It's up to you to decide. And so he says some things, but then there's a lot of teenagers that kind of chime in and talk about, mm -hmm. um, you know, what, what's going on. And it's not just about marijuana. It's about other things, just how we're dealing with mm -hmm. uh, society at the time. This is late 60s, mm -hmm. uh, you know, all this stuff. The Anita Bryant one was made by a TV station in Florida. <laughs> and Yeah, there's or yeah. Orange, <laughs> an orange juice tie-in or something or some kid. Yeah. And so Anita Bryant, she narrates. You don't see her. Yeah. Um, so you don't know what she's wearing, something cool like Sonny, Sonny Bono is. But um, basically, it's, it's these little tiny vignettes that try to explain what drugs are like. And the, the film's called Drugs Are Like, like That. that. Mm -hmm. And um, it kind of fails. <laughs> it kind of makes sense, but then it kind of fails in a weird way. Yeah. And you see where they're trying to go with it. Um, but, um, yeah, so drug films are those ones that, um, kind of sometimes get it right, but a lot of times don't get it right at all, get it really wrong. Um, and especially, you know, if we think about, again, we watch these films back that were made in the sixties and seventies and even eighties. And now we think about, well, those drugs that they're talking about are actually legal in the state yeah. or those drugs. Yeah. You know, they 
So what is that information? You know, what was all that scare stuff? Was that not real? Or, you know, so it, it's kind of interesting to watch in hindsight. Yeah, it brings up to mind another big topic of sex films or health films. Mm-hmm. Um, you show a lot of those. Are there, is there anything about that category? I mean, the non-adult, non-pornographic ones, you know, the, the um, right. educational ones. Is there anything that comes to mind that you want to say about that particular genre? Uh, well, I should say that there is a, a topic that I, or a genre called academic porn, which are shown in um, human sexuality classes where it shows people just having sex, but uh, the music is not as good. Um, the, uh, <laughs> so there, there's a couple of different types of, uh, of sex ed films. So there's ones that deal with puberty. Yeah. There's ones that deal with, you know, where do babies come from and reproduction. Mm-hmm. Then there's ones that deal with uh, venereal disease or, or STIs, as they're called, now, sexually transmitted infections. Mm-hmm. And so uh, different ones have different techniques. And sometimes you'll find a film that smushes them all together into one thing. It's like, all right, we have the kids. We got them to sign their permission slip. So we're going to just shove all this information in their heads. <laughs> yeah. um, Almost too and so, again, some of those are good. You're like, wow, this film was made in the 50s, and this is amazing. Why wasn't this film shown? And then some of them are like, is this about sex? Because I haven't seen – I don't even know. There's a bunch of flowers. I, I don't know what this is about. <laughs> yeah. You mean that you um, are so euphemistic and G-rated, right? That they're trying to yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah. and so um, <laughs> you know, a lot of these these uh, films were, and the whole like curriculum of sex education was determined by the school board. And so, if you had a school board that was kind of leaning conservative, yeah, uh, or yeah. prudish, you know, you wouldn't get to see anything. Yeah. Um, or you you'd have to. There was a whole thing about finding a pink slip for girls when they were going through menstruation, um, you know, or getting towards that age, they would uh, basically um, separate the girls and the boys. Right. The boys maybe would watch something, but the girls would watch a film. Mm-hmm. And it was usually, what's interesting about this is they would watch a film about their bodies and what the changes were in their bodies. Yeah. Um, m- most of those films were sponsored by a company that made feminine hygiene products. That's right. Of course, that would make so sense. Yeah. Modus or Tampex or you know whoever they were making the films because basically they were advertising to you know a next the next generation of future customers. Mm-hmm. And, and it's fascinating. And guys didn't get that. So the the films made for guys, you don't really see. There's like one or two from the fifties. Whereas there were a bunch for girls in the fifties, mm-hmm. um, and you you start to see it for the guys in the sixties, but um, it's really like, well, we got the girls aside, so maybe we should get the guys aside. Yeah. Um, and then in the seventies and eighties, kids would sometimes be together and they would see these films. That's right. That's right. And, and they would giggle a lot, and, and you know what's interesting? Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Lots of giggling. Well, to get really meta about this. And some of my favorite teen high school genre pictures of the 70s and 80s, the fictional characters in those high school films watch some of these films, right? There's always this scene where they laugh at – watch this thing from the 50s and think it's impossibly outdated and square and 
and you know make sex right. make dirty jokes. So there's also that motif, right? Of um, the right. the sex and and, and so yeah. what what's interesting about this, and this is what is interesting about these films, just films in general that deal with hygiene, is why does the school have to show these? Why did the school feel like it was compelled? to you know, pull kids aside and show them these films. And what did you find? And it's because, it's because the parents, some parents were not teaching their kids these, these lessons. Yeah, wow. Uh, and it was like, so it's, this kid stinks. So and we need to do something to make sure that this kid they want kind of knows, not maybe not that kid himself knows that he stinks, but he knows that kids stink. And so taking a bath like once a week, is important. <laughs> and so, you know, that's a social thing. That's a, what I call social engineering. It's the idea is like, you're helping this kid realize that I need to be clean because otherwise mm -hmm. people will heart will judge me harshly. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, it's maybe not a message that the parents instilled to them. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so you're saying that some of these these films reflect uh, problems inside the family structure, or, in, or class issues, or economic inequality, or poverty. That these are things that come to the fore, and you're saying that schools are having to deal with the effects of all that. Is that kind of in a, in a roundabout? Is that a right? Right, and, and that's yeah. that's one of the things is you know schools are charged with having to. One, keep kids <laughs> for a certain period of time right. uh, so that their parents can work and that they're not running wild in the street. Right. Uh, but the other part of it is like they're charged with like we need to make productive uh, members of society. And so what can we do to help that happen? Like what are the factors that um, help kids blend in with, with society and so that they're not sticking out? Because outcasts in society are bad news. Yeah, <laughs> they become criminals. They become, you know, whatever drug dealers or drug druggies, or you know, they get pregnant too early, or uh, any of these social ills. Yeah. So what can we do to kind of make that happen? And so there's lots of films that talk about how to be a friend. That's right. And you know how you know about the social aspects of, of you know living. of life. Yeah. yeah, living. And so it's it's fascinating that schools did that. But it's also, again, we're going back to this idea that it's, it's fairly progressive. Yeah. Instead of just letting the kid like fail on their own and not really help them. Well, here's a way to, here's a film that kind of shows like what can, what can be done. Yeah. And this is, you know, pointing out with a third person, like, well, this is what, you know, such and such is, uh, you know, talks too much and blah, blah, blah. And so people don't like them. It's like, Oh, well, hopefully you show that to a kid and they go, Oh, is that me? Okay, well, I'll modify my behavior. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, watching those films that you just described now in a cultural context like ours, where I, I hold that thought. I was going to say that now we're in a context where um, there's a maximum amount of freedom or desired freedom for social groups, right, and for interests. Mm -hmm. And probably some of those things in, in even – post-war films that were thought of as progressive probably would be seen as reactionary or conservative now because the idea now is is that you ought not to teach anything, right? Because if you teach something, you're imposing, right? You're imposing a right. mainstream identity or a mainstream way of life on this genuine subcultural identity or niche. So I'd imagine that are some of the films you show more controversial now for that reason than they would have been when you show them 
or more uh, there's more distance from the film among audiences or i'm just just a question that popped into my mind well it, it seems like um that yeah some films like i said don't age well that you're just like ooh that's not that doesn't feel right yeah um and again it was about maintaining status quo back then Right, right. Um, and so our view... They're bound to the time in which they were they were created. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so you've got to kind of put yourself in that brain space. And that's one of my challenges. I just don't show the film. Is I try to contextualize a little bit and give you a sense of, like, here's some things to look for, and this is when this film is made. <laughs> and maybe, like, explore, like, why was this film made? Oh, wow. uh, because there's some films that I get where I'm just like... I don't know what the point of this film was. <laughs> like, why did they show this? Who did they show this to? And yeah. um, I, I think a good example of that is is a film that is so. When I've done like call in radio shows when I've gone on tour, okay, and twice in different parts of the country, somebody would call in and say, "I saw this film when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. It features." Uh, a kid getting off the school bus, falling into the snow and dying. Oh, wow. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's Cypher in the Snow. Yeah. Um, and they're like, why did they show that film to me? Hmm. And so have you seen this? I, it's been so long that I, I right. barely remember it. It's been a while, but go ahead. It's, it's important. You right. Do. Well, the premise of this is, and this is made by... Brigham Young University. Oh, it's a Mormon film. Okay. And the point of this film is that this kid dies because nobody loves him. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, you find out that he's from a broken family. Mm-hmm. Uh, he gets picked on in school. He, the teachers kind of just don't pay attention to him. And basically, he just stops living because nobody loves him. And this film was shown to third graders. This was shown to lots of kids. And my take on this is, oh, my God, that film should not have been shown to a single kid <laughs> because that, in that scenario, there's nothing that the kid could do to get out of that. Yeah. Like the kid is not given any opportunity yeah. to break out of this cycle of depression and it's, it basically just says mm-hmm. nobody loves you. And if nobody loves you, uh, there's studies that show that, that kids die, babies die when, if nobody, they don't get any attention. And so imagine if you're a little kid in the third grade mm-hmm. and you had an argument with your parents and you feel like they don't love you. Then you watch this film that says basically if your parents don't love you and you're not doing well in school, you could die. Um, that film is, is horrible. Yeah, I <laughs> and I realize the film is not made for kids. It's made for parents. It's made for adults. Mm. It's made for teachers. Yeah. And it's, it's talking about the importance of, of, of cultivating a child, like how you, yeah, yeah. you know, pay attention to a child and, child, you know, they will respond, et cetera. Um, and, it has traumatized an entire generation of kids. Yeah, yeah. Of course, you know, I didn't see that film as a child. I saw it as an adult, I think maybe from one of your shows possibly or right. in some other 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 um, 
venue, which is different. So it's, there's films you see and films you don't. I wanted to ask about individual films, if you don't mind. Sure. Uh, Sally at 13 is a personal favorite. I think it's a beautiful film. Um, right. Did you ever meet the filmmakers of that or know who? I did not. I tried to do a little bit of research to see what the deal was because this is a film that feels like it was actually part of a bigger film. Oh, I see. Um, like it's basically a young girl and her friend kind of, you know, going through puberty and it doesn't deal as much with the, you know, the, the educational aspect of it, but the emotional aspect of it. Mm. Um, and just trying to fit in and trying to, you know, be older than she is and just dealing with the hassles of being a, a girl in a, in a middle school situation. Yeah. And, um, I think it's really great. It's a wonderful portrayal yeah, of what's great. going on. Um, but it just kind of abruptly ends. <laughs> well, so you, think there's a, you think there's a scene, a scene or you think it's a part? I never hadn't occurred to me. That no, I think, think that, no, like the film itself, I like check to see, like, is, is something being clipped out? Uh, like, no, it just ends. Okay. And I think that this might have been a project, uh, you know, a coming of age film that somebody did that they just didn't finish. Uh, and so I have seen films like that that have been released mm. where it's like, huh, that kind of doesn't look done. <laughs> There's aspects of it. It gets the point across, but it kind of doesn't, it's very jerky or doesn't feel right. And then, you know, so I haven't been able to find the information about the filmmaker or about the film in general, but it is this really wonderful um, film about, you know, being a young girl going through puberty. Yeah, well, speaking of Han, I have your I have here in front of me the best of Han. Remember when you released that in the pre-internet? Oh yeah, yeah. I still have some of your pre-internet DVDs. They're 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 fantastic here. And and um, on on the best of Han, there's one film that stands out, and I'm going to be on record saying that this might be the weirdest movie I've ever seen. Anyway. Oh, excellent. <laughs> um, and it's so weird you can't you can barely pronounce the title um i think you know the film i'm talking about it's a, it's a movie and i'm just dying to know if is it uh is it um malika palika to do skip two it is malika palika skip two and i i'm dying to know how much you know about this that i you know um know or, or or if other people agree with me that this takes the cake as one of the as one of the odder films of the 70s uh, uh Yes, it is very strange. And it was made by this company called Crocus Productions, who did other films. They did other films involving stop motion, uh, either uh, with clay or with uh, other things, mostly with clay. Uh -huh. And so they did a film called Munchers, which was a dental hygiene film. <laughs> they did one called um, uh, it's a bus safety film, and I can't remember the name. It's another weird made-up thing. Anyways, Malika Palika do skip two is really strange. And it's a film that's about creativity and imagination, but it goes way off the rails. <laughs> um, you basically have these two kids who um, they're like clay kids and they enter this, this land called Malapalapadusia too. And they turn themselves into beanbags. Yeah. Now why they turn themselves into beanbags, I mean, from a technical standpoint, maybe it's easier to animate a beanbag, yeah. but <laughs> I, I just, I, you know, it's baffling to me. And I tried to reach out uh, to some people in Chicago because they were Chicago based to see like, 
what the deal is um, to see if they knew anybody, any names percolated. Because sometimes those those show up. And then what, oftentimes when I put stuff on the internet, like Internet Archive or YouTube, mm-hmm. sometimes a filmmaker will find me and say like, hey, I, you got my film. And they're they're excited that somebody put it online. But some of them might get it. They're like, yeah, you got to take that down. But some of them are like, hey, I'm so happy you, you showed this. It's giving a new life to this film that I worked on. Mm-hmm. And so I get to ask them a bunch of questions, but the Crocus production people, I have not found them yet. So I'm just hoping that one day, maybe somebody will be listening to this podcast yes, and say, please, I know Crocus production. Yeah. Crocus productions, Malakabadu, skip two. Malakabadu, skip two. Yeah. It's, it's, I only know how to pronounce it because I've shown that film every opportunity I can get. I, I can see why. Um, what are some of the more unusual responses you've gotten to it? Um, I mean, people, I don't know, just it's memorable that somebody just freaks out and, you know, you know. Well, the thing is, like, I introduced the film by saying that this film is not about drugs, but it is certainly influenced by drugs. <laughs> yeah. um, because there are lots of weird things in there where you're just like, what? And it's like, is that a, a hidden drug reference or yeah. I don't know what's going on. Um, but yeah, people are really baffled by it. Uh, some people hate it. They absolutely cannot stand the film. I think, I feel like my wife doesn't like it um, <laughs> because it is just so oh, over the top weird. It's so just strange that. Um, you know, whatever educational message or entertainment has just been zapped out of it. Yeah. And, um, you know, and I get that, but I love showing it because I, the reactions are so strong either for it or so strong against it. Right. Right. Um, and, and ultimately that's why I like showing the films too, is I love showing films that were made for kids mm-hmm. and showing them for adults. Yeah. Because adults, don't kids are so much more open to to whatever and adults have very set like linear sense of how things are supposed to be portrayed Mm -hmm. so if i show a film that doesn't have an ending that has an open ending Mm -hmm. adults get mad (laughs) they're like how dare you so um you want to know how it turns out is that it it's like this good right right it's like how dare you you know provide this information and then leave it up to me to finish it. And, you know, what's the educational value of that? So you mentioned Fur Coat Club. Mm-hmm. Fur Coat Club is another film that polarizes audiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, most people love the film. A lot of some people don't like it because they're like, what is the point of that film? Is this a film to teach girls to be fur fetishists? You know, like, what is the deal? Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they don't like that. They don't like the sense that I'm showing what quote unquote educational film that doesn't seem to have educational value and might even be something that's like teaching bad behavior. Mm. Um, and you know, what they don't realize is that some of these films were meant to be shown in what we call language arts or reading. Mm. And so the idea is that you show this, then at the end you have the kids comment on the film, comment on the story. 
Mm. Uh, they write their own stories. They write their own, you know, they come up with, you know, this is a way to, to watch something and then think about it critically, you know, like a fourth grade brain thinking critically about yeah. something. And so the teacher gets the kids. And so it's intentionally provocative mm-hmm. so that kids will respond to it. Uh, and think about it. And so this is a way to kind of introduce them to then you have them start reading literature and stories that are interesting and, and provocative and you get them interested in the, you know, in these, these things and wrapping their heads around these different things. And adults don't necessarily like that. Um, one of my favorite films is this film called Pamela Long's Birthday for Grandma. That's a great film. And, yeah, and it ends with a kind of a tragedy, you know, not a big tragedy, nobody gets killed or anything, but it ends. And then the film credit runs. That's right. And, and you can hear people audibly go, Oh, Oh, like, like upset. Like they did not, it didn't get ended. Like we don't know what happened. And so this is then when as a teacher, I would say, all right, well, let, what do you think happened? Mm. You know, what, what, and, and then, you know, it gets the kids to think and to exercise their brains. Um, and so that's the point of a lot of these films that I love collecting and showing. I wanted to um, ask you about an informational question. I mean, well, first of all, what comes to mind when you think about a filmmaker contacting you that was sort of anonymous and a film that you liked that you showed and you connected with the filmmaker? Any names that you um, want to want to offer the examples of people that um, you have contacted? Well, um, so yeah, different filmmakers have reached out to me over uh, different periods of time, or also people who have appeared in the film. Okay. Uh, and so, you know, I have like, I ask questions and I try to make sure that they have a decent copy of the film if they don't have it, because some filmmakers don't. Yeah. Uh, I'm like, hey, do you want this? Um, and so, yeah, and I try to ask like, like behind the scenes questions, like, because some films, I, I have like major questions of like what was going on behind this film. Oh, yeah. um, and so, uh, you know, that's really great because it kind of connects me with these people. And a lot of these people, you know, they worked, they went to film school maybe, hmm. and they wanted to make a, you know, like a film, but they couldn't get a job making like feature films. Hmm. So they kind of worked for, a regional film company doing commercials or industrial films or whatever. And so there's lot, you know, lots of examples of those. Like most major cities had a film production company that was making stuff like commercials or mm-hmm. industrials or, you know, whatever promotional films. Uh, and so, um, you know, I love hearing the stories and finding out all this pretty, you know, interesting stuff. I bet. I mean, it must be exciting to meet somebody that did that and have them have to make that connection. Um, yeah. You're discussing regions. I'm thinking, of course, the famous George Romero film that just just was re-released that he made right. the Pittsburgh city, city of Pittsburgh, which has a political. Do you know what I'm talking about? That would fit under the. Uh, is this the one about the amusement park or is yes. this another one? Yes, it is the amusement park. Yeah, I yeah I have not seen that one, but I have seen other things that he did. I think post uh, Night of the Living Dead, um, that were sports related. <laughs> you know, like he was. Um, yeah, it was all about these different sports stars, like Pittsburgh professional sports stars, and so uh, I've seen some of that. 
Um, but yeah, you know, you, you kind of filmmakers, they have to pay the bills. They can't make a film and then just expect to like coast the rest of their lives. They are always, that's what I realize is they're always hustling, yeah. uh, always working on the next project. And that's one of the reasons that a lot of these films, what I actually have original materials from some filmmakers that I've been trying to find Oh wow! Uh, and say like, Hey, I have this film. Um, you know, it ended up at this place and now I have it and I, you, maybe you want it back. Um, and so I try to repatriate whenever I can. Um, but yeah, what happens is people make a film, they put all their energy into it. It's done. Then they move on to the next film. <laughs> and so, you know, that all the material might end up in a storage space or in a garage or in a basement somewhere. And, you know, then they're always thinking about the next project. Um, and so, um, you know, and some filmmakers, I reach out to them and say like, Hey, you made this film. And they're like, did I, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, your name's in the credit. And they're like, oh, yeah, I just barely remember that. Cause you know, that's constantly working. Well, that could be a good thing if they were, if they were getting a lot of gigs as a filmmaker that they don't remember something that there's the positive part of that was that they were work, <laughs> they were working filmmakers. Right. That's good. Right. Um, yeah, Exactly. Uh, I wanted to ask you about the about the about the moon and NASA because you made a point in a couple of these new shows. I don't remember you to emphatically say that the moon landing happened. It it, it so happens I'm reading Edgar Mitchell's Mitchell's memoir, The Explorer. Mm-hmm. Do you know that's this book he wrote in the mid nineties? It's is is um. I don't. I don't. It's really beautiful. It's a really good book, but it so happens that I'm just reading that right at the moment that you mentioned that. I thought, oh, that's. Do, do you know what's the precipitating event or reason that you had to state that, you know, that this is not opinion, this is an event? Have you been getting <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's, you know, it's been, it's been sticking in my craw for a while uh, that people talk about the moon landing as a, as a hoax. Oh, God. And part of the, the reason why is because I actually did work digitizing stuff for NASA oh. um, and the, the plan I was going to digitize everything that NASA had, uh, but that did not work out because the funding did not happen. Oh. I was basically going to take five years of my life and just travel you and know, digitize. You know, I would love to do a whole episode just on your work on that material. I bet that's some amazing, amazing material. Yeah, but but, but go ahead. I mean, it's it's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. So what I ended up doing was about six hundred uh, videos that I got from the John Glenn Space Center. Oh wow. Uh, that were all educational, but some raw stuff in there. But I got to see like a bunch of other things. And I think what's interesting in this, I feel this is the case um, in general. Like I, I've, one of the ways that I make money is selling stock footage. Oh, wow. And so I've gotten hypercritical <laughs> when I watch documentaries and how they use stock footage and, and what they are concentrating on. And what has happened is these major historical events or these people of history get reduced down to a simple soundbite or to a simple scene. And so when we talk about, you know, it's Martin Luther King's birthday, they always show that I have a dream speech. Even, not even the whole speech, just a second. And it's, it's like, wow, you know, there's a whole vast amount of other things that you did um, and you can talk about and you can show. Uh, but when they talk about the moon landing, they always show the same little snippets. That's right. And so people are looking at that material and they get hypercritical 
of like trying to pick out technical issues and saying like, well, that can't be true. Look at that flag is waving and there's no error. So how could that happen? Yeah. Not thinking about the vast amount of information that was recorded mm-hmm. and the photos that were taken and everything that led up to that mission. So it's not like, you know, they flicked a switch and like, oh, we're on the moon. It's like, no, there was oh, yeah. years of stuff that was done to, to end up on the moon. And so when someone says, well, I watched a video and it was very compelling for me to believe that it was a hoax. I'm like, yeah, but did you watch the hundreds of hours <laughs> of NASA material that was done prior to that? Um, you know, there's so much information, but, but people, yeah. they kind of encapsulate it down to this little tiny thing. And then they get hypercritical of that tiny thing. And it's like, wait, you're missing the vast, the, the giant iceberg of stuff that's under the water, all this stuff. And that's one of my missions is I was like, I want to give access to all those material oh, because yeah. it's phenomenal. It is. I mean, and so said that, that that could have be its own episode, uh, ideally with, you know, right. someone, someone from NASA or, um, right. This book is really incredible. This Edgar Mitchell book on it. Don't, don't want to get too far off topic, but it's a good one. But, but, um, so that's just basically your, your experience working, I guess, w- with NASA and, only increasing your frustration, I guess, at the ignorance of, of some people, right? About- well, and, and also somebody, so when I, when I do the streaming shows, people are commenting and I can read the comments yeah. and somebody was like, I showed some NASA thing. It wasn't even about, um, moon landing. It was about something else. Somebody's like, well, I don't believe we landed on the moon. Oh, I'm like, hold up. <laughs> and so I had to say something. I was like, all right, you can have your opinions about lots of things, but that's not something you can have an opinion about. That's, yeah. You know, it's a factual thing. Yeah. And, you know. Wow. Is there anything else uh, as we as we move towards conclusion of this wonderful episode that you want to say about preservation in general or about your journey with this material? Anything that comes to mind that you think is important or that you want to emphasize? Well, I mean, I there's a couple of things. Um, and I say this to a lot of people uh, who are looking to become archivists. Um one is film is easy to preserve. Uh, video is hard. Uh, video is really hard. But the important thing is, is preservation is really giving access to the material. And so the challenge for me, once I rescued these from dumpsters or auctions, landfills, whatever, uh, the challenge is to give access to them, put eyeballs on it again. Um, and so that's why I do these shows. That's why I do these podcasts is to kind of say like, hey, there's this cultural history that's sitting on a shelf and you should check it out and and kind of see like, oh, you know what? It's from the past. It's from like 40 years ago, 50 years ago. But guess what? It's actually addresses what's going on right now. That's right. Or addresses something that could potentially go on in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've learned so much um, from these films uh, and – Give them a shot. Yeah. That's beautifully put. Uh, I want to thank you, Skip. This is um, uh, for anybody. This is Skip, uh, Alzheimer, AV Geeks. Um, anything coming up in the future that you want to tell people about that you're doing projects uh, before we go? Or? Um, you know, I'm just showing films. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> We're coming up on our, probably our 2000th film in a couple of months. Wow. Um, that we've shown since uh, mid-March of last year. 
Um, and so these shows are free and they're on YouTube and Facebook and Twitch. And it's a wonderful way to share stuff. And, um, you know, if you're hunkered down, uh, in your house, uh, the shows are archived and you can watch them at any time and, um, yeah, join the fun. Well, thank you, Skip. I, re- I really enjoyed this uh, episode and, um, be safe and be well and continue doing what you're doing. Thanks so much. Thank you. I very much appreciate it. I don't like goodbyes, so I'll see you soon, folks. Thank you.